0: No more doll blades and no more problems processing your wild game. To check out all of the products from Outdoor Edge, visit OutdoorEdge.com. And at checkout, enter the discount code NATION30, that's nation 3 for 30% off of your purchase. You're listening to the Average Conservationist Podcast brought to you by Go Hunt and in partner with 2% for Conservation. Sign up today to become an insider at GoHunt.com. Getting 2% certified means you've made the same commitments as popular brands like Sitka, First Light, Stone Glacier, and seek outside in giving at least 1% of your time and dollars back to wildlife. But it's not just for outdoor companies. Breweries, contractors, coffee roasters, and even piano repair companies have earned 2% certification and stand out as leaders in their community for doing so. Businesses that are committed to conservation deserve your business when you shop. Learn more about 2% for Conservation at fish.com and wildlife.org. That's fishandwildlife.org. What's going on, everyone? Happy Thursday. Welcome back to another episode of the Average Conservationist Podcast, and I'm your host, Marcus Ewing. Uh, Before we get into uh, today's episode, I just want to Take a quick second and say that I hope that everyone uh, had a nice holiday weekend, uh, that everyone was safe, got to spend some time outdoors, spend some time with friends and family, and just really kind of take everything in here before, uh, for a lot of us, kids are back at school, uh, and the hustle and bustle uh, kind of continues on. Uh, but for a lot of us outdoorsmen and outdoorswomen, the good good news is, is that Uh, depending upon the part of this, the country that you're living in, either hunting season has started or we are on the brink of, uh, starting here. So there's certainly a lot to look forward to. So, uh, yeah, uh, today's episode is with Kevin Singleton and Kevin is the owner and founder of 2% certified yearning wild treats and chews. Uh, they make, uh, different, um, chews and treats for, uh, for your pets, for dogs, um, it's really cool uh Kevin and his company uh they are the first of their kind in terms of the dog treats dog chews uh, in that uh, kind of realm and then also the first two percent certified business from the state of New York as well so uh something very cool that Kevin takes a lot of pride in uh, Kevin and I really get to talk about uh kind of a deep dive into uh dog chews and dog treats and Really, kind of how all of that came to be for him. You know, what started off as uh, just something that him and his wife like to do for their own uh, their own pets, their own dogs. There, um, you know, when COVID hit and some some circumstances for them changed, he kind of thought it would be a good idea to uh, kind of start up that second in- income stream. And uh, they were already doing it anyway. Uh, but you know, once they kind of got down that road a little bit, they realized you know how much goes into it the, um, the hoops that you kind of have to jump through, uh, in terms of making sure that everything's uh, safe, uh, to be able to sell. Um, also kind of this, uh, this market for shed antlers. Um, I mean, everyone, uh, you know, knows that, that, uh, antlers and shed hunting, uh, has, has become a very popular thing or for some has always been very popular, but, um, how Kevin actually, um, gets, uh, the elk antlers for his, uh, chew toys, uh, that he sells is a pretty cool little story there. Um, and then obviously all the way back to Kevin's experience, uh, as a kid growing up in the outdoors in New York there and, you know, how he was really introduced to conservation at, a, at a pretty young age and took advantage of a really cool opportunity, uh, that he had and, you know, what that kind of meant to him and how that kind of helped shape really his perspective uh, as far as the outdoors is concerned and you know why conservation is such an important part of, of the company. So episode 68, Kevin Singleton. I uh, hope you guys enjoy. Uh, Before the conversation with Kevin, though, I want to tell you about our partners and our friends over at Stone Glacier. Uh, I know I say this a lot, but if if you have not already, please be sure and download the Stone Glacier app. You can get that on iTunes or Google Play, uh, whichever type of device you have. Uh, And stay uh, kind of in the know and up to date with everything that's going on with Stone Glacier. They just recently launched their first piece of gear for their Black Label series. Uh, Definitely be sure and check that out. Uh, when you download the app, you get kind of first access or early access to a lot of uh, new products, um, new films, and recipes and things like that that they're uh, that they're sharing out as well. Um, and <clears throat> I know we're getting kind of late in the game here, but if you haven't already and you're in the need for um, any type of gear for uh, maybe a trip or just your your season uh, that you have coming up, definitely be sure to check out StoneGlacier.com uh, packs. Tents, sleep systems, uh, base layers, mid-layers, outerwear, um, you know, really whatever it is that you could think of that you may need for a hunt, uh, they're going to have it there. Plus some really cool, just everyday apparel as well. So again, be sure and check them out at StoneGlacier.com. All right, with me today on the podcast, I have the owner and founder of 2% Certified Yearning Wild Treats and Shoes, Kevin Singleton. Kevin, how are you?
1: I'm good, Marcus. How are you?
0: I'm doing well. Thank you. You know, I believe that you are uh, the first and only company uh, of the sorts that is 2% certified. So, one congratulations on that, and uh, I'm definitely excited to hear more about the brand.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Yes, as far as I know, there's uh, no other uh, dog treat businesses uh, that are 2% certified. I know I was the first. Uh, I'm not aware of any that have come after me yet. Um, so yeah, I'm pretty excited about this too, man.
0: Yeah. Awesome. Great. Well, let's kind of get right into it here. So, so tell me about yearning wild treats and choose. I mean, you know, what made you decide to start it? Uh, you know, kind of walk me through that process.
1: Okay. Um, well I work a full-time job, but I work more than full-time actually. I work about, usually average about 60 hours a week. Um, and when COVID hit, uh, the overtime started drying up a little bit. Uh, I was lucky enough to keep my job through COVID, um, and, but uh, you know the extra income that I was used to uh, just wasn't there anymore, and we didn't know if it was going to be a short-term thing, a long-term thing. You know, nobody knew what was going on with COVID and what was going to happen. Um, I'd always wanted to start a business, just didn't really know what I wanted to do or how I would go about it, because I don't want to quit my full-time job. Um, I'm pretty happy where I am, but I also always wanted a little little side thing going on, so um, it was basically COVID played a big part in it. Uh, believe it or not, uh, it, it gave me, uh, I wanted something to fall back on. Uh,
0: right.
1: if, if I wasn't able to make the money I was used to making at my regular job, um, I wanted something to compensate for that, something to uh, fill that void. Um, and I wanted something that I could do at home, um, spend more time in the house with the wife, with the kids, uh, while making uh, the extra money on the side, as opposed to being away from home. Uh, to make the money, so uh, I had been making uh, treats for my own dog. Uh, me and my wife had been doing that just as a little fun thing, um, and we started thinking about it and doing some research. Said, you know what, we might be able to make a couple of dollars doing this, um, and that's what we did. You know, we did our research. There's a lot more involved in it than we ever thought. Uh, it's not as easy as I thought it would be, um, <laughs> but we did. And it's it's a learning experience. You know, we're we're going on a year now. We're almost uh, end of September will be a year. As a legal business, um, and you know, so far so good. We got a lot, a lot of room to grow, um, but it's uh, it's been going good.
0: Oh, that's that's awesome. That's great to hear. You know, it's it's nice to hear um, kind of some some good stories that happened because of COVID. Now, I mean, obviously the fact that your hours got cut back, you know, during that time, but the fact that you were able to. Kind of dive into this and start, you know, something that, that you and your wife were passionate about. I mean, that's th- those are the cool things that that have kind of come about from this, you know, kind of shitty situation. So it's, I'm I'm glad to hear about things like that.
1: Absolutely, yeah. Um, you know, obviously there was a lot of negative things and still are a lot of negative things, but uh, this was definitely one of the few positives that came out of it for us. Um, it, it gave us, you know, it gives us an opportunity to work together at home. It's something eventually uh, I'd like to get my kids involved into. You know, if the business takes off uh, and is good and successful, you know they can help me out. It could be, you know, like a family uh, family event. You know, uh, going out to these places, these markets and stuff, selling them and, and making them at home and all this stuff it could be a real family affair, and we can all make money together while spending time together.
0: Yeah, and, and leave a legacy. You know, if uh, you know, assuming that all goes well, you know, leave a legacy for your kids and something that they can, you know, grow into and, and hopefully take on, you know, down, or take over, you know, on down the road when you and your wife you know, decide you're done making dog treats or whatever, you know, like, hey, you guys do it, you know, at that point you'd think they would, you know, know the business really well and and everything that goes into it. So, no, that's, you you sound, it sounds like you started the business uh, for all of the right reasons, you know?
1: Yeah, there was definitely a a lot of different things going on, you know, I've always wanted to to have a business, Um, I just never knew what, Uh, I always wanted something where I can make some extra money. Uh, And be at home because although the, you know, the extra hours at work are great, um, it's also the more hours I spend at work, the less hours I spend with my wife, with my kids, and then also eventually the less time I get to spend outdoors doing the other things I like to do. Um, So anything I can do at home and try to combine some of those things and, you know, kill two birds with one stone is, is wonderful.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So now you you mentioned there that uh, it kind of there's a lot more that goes into it. You had to do a lot of research, uh, you know, on the front or yeah, on the front end of things. So how difficult is it? Um, I mean, I, I would imagine that the the actual baking of the treats or making the chews like is is fairly straightforward or fairly easy. I mean, especially if you said you and your wife had been doing it, it's just kind of a fun thing for your own dog. But then when you're going to start selling things, I'd imagine there's uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? There's probably certain like rules and regulations that you have to abide by, uh, even though you're only, you know, they're for animals and they're not for humans. So like, what was that process like? And like, what are some of the things that you have to make sure, or like specifications, I guess that you have to make sure that you meet?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it was definitely a lot more involved than I expected it to be. Um, it it varies by state. Um, so, Dog food and dog treats are two totally separate things, uh legally. Okay. Um dog is regulated by the federal government and dog treats are regulated by State Departments of Agriculture. So um there's a lot of overlapping rules uh between the two, but uh every state is different. So I happen to live in New York State, which happens to be a very difficult state for a lot of different things. <laughs> <laughs> um they don't- for a lot of things that we like to do here. Um, and making dog treats is one of them. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a lot of paperwork. Uh, it's a small department. There's like maybe two people, I believe, that really deal with it hands-on um, in the Department of Agriculture. So they're overwhelmed with everybody else that does this because that was another thing that I realized that a lot of people do little mom-and-pop, um, you know, little dog treat business. They just bake, bake treats in their oven and they sell them at farmer's markets and flea markets and stuff like that. Um, so there's actually a lot more competition out there locally than I expected as well. Um, what made it harder for us is that, uh, our whole idea behind it was, uh, you know, every, everybody can make a biscuit, right. You know, and, and all you go to the, the pet stores and everybody's got these little cute little biscuits and bone shapes that they want to give the dogs. And it's mostly like cookies, basically that, you know, uh, for, us, for humans, it's, so what we wanted to do was we wanted to get back to the roots and do more of, you know, like jerky styles, um, meat-based um, uh, treats, uh, not all these different flours and sugars and salts and stuff, uh, single ingredient, li- limited ingredient, uh, depending. You know, we don't use any preservatives, nothing like that. Um, so the dehydrated treats, the jerky treats, uh, that's a whole nother level of um, paperwork. That needs to get uh, filed with the state. Now, New York State is one of the few states that requires all this extra work. You know, uh, Pennsylvania, for example, doesn't require any of the extra work, which is right next door. But uh, since I live in New York, i got to do all this extra paperwork and and extra fees. So in order to do, um, for example, like a biscuit-type treat, uh, you need to come up with your recipe, right? You you make your treats, uh, you send them out to a lab to get them tested for nutritional content, uh, moisture, protein, fat, all that kind of stuff. Um, you have to design your labels, how you're going to package it and sell them, and all that information needs to be sent into the State Department of Agriculture. Now, the State Department of Agriculture takes a couple months to review all your paperwork. Uh, they check all the ingredients, make sure all your ingredients are a legal ingredients uh, to use for, for uh, dog treats, and then they'll either approve it or deny it. If they deny it, they come back. They tell you why you work on it. You come back and whatever. Now, in New York State, it's um, they charge $100 a treat per year um, for, for each variety of each treat. Now, on top of that, if you want to do anything that has any kind of dried, uh, dehydrated meat, fish, or poultry, now you also have to get a scheduled process done by a uh, recognized food processor. So... <laughs> Yeah, so I had to – so, so for example, I make a very simple beef liver jerky treat that I've been making since day one for my dog. It's it's, it's literally beef liver. It's dehydrated beef liver. It's a mess to make because the beef liver is huge. You know, it's, I get, them, I get uh, a whole beef liver, which is like 60 pounds of liver that I can only fit half of it in my sink at one time uh, to clean and stuff like that. But uh, it's very simple. It's a mess, but it's uh, it's simple. And, and we dry it out. We make jerky out of it. But for that, to get that approved, I had to – it was months of back and forth with Cornell University's food science program, uh, sending them samples, talking on the phone, emails, I have to do this, I have to do that, um, to get it approved. Basically, uh, I have to do all the steps that make it uh, okay for human consumption, for dog consumption, okay. um, even though – and you can sell – raw meat as dog food you know as long as it's labeled as raw dog food there's a lot of people. that's a big thing now a lot of people feed raw diets to their dogs, and you can do that and which was my thing i didn't understand why i i can so i can sell raw chicken or just raw beef liver and say this is raw beef liver is raw dog food and that's fine but once i dehydrate it i need all these uh all these processes and all this paperwork to say that it's okay for human consumption before you can give it to your dogs so it's a whole nother step it's a couple hundred dollars for each treat on top of it and um it's a process and then and then they do um each treat is registered for the calendar year starting january 1st so no matter when you register in the year it's only good until december 31st and it's the same amount of money no matter when you do it so the whole timing of things and trying to make it worth it develop to develop this new one and that new one um has been very difficult but we've got uh we're only doing right now for this year, um, 2021, we have the one meat based one, um, the beef liver. And we do a couple other ones. We do some, some, uh, we do a, a sweet, one. we do uh, peanut butter, banana chips, uh, and a biscuit style. Um, and going forward, we're going to develop more. We had a lot more meat based ones that we had planned. And once we hit that, you know, speed bump, we had to kind of go off track and, and make some others in the meantime. So, um, yeah, we've it's it's been a it's been a process, it's been a learning curve, uh, it's getting easier, uh, but it's just once. You know?
0: Yeah, I mean that's crazy that you have to jump through all of those hoops for. I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, anyone who who owns a pet, uh, and I'm a dog guy as well. I mean, I've had them since I was little. I I have two dogs now. I mean, they're, they're part of your family. So obviously, you, you care and love for them in a way that, you know, a non-pet owner doesn't quite understand. But man, the hoops that you have to jump through to, I mean, basically, they're saying that, okay, if you're going to, you know, manufacture and sell a dog treat, I've got to be able to eat it too. It's got to be safe enough for me to eat if it, if it contains meat uh, in order to sell it to a dog, which is crazy. And it, it's almost like... With all the like, I, I guess I understand to to some degree, you know all of the the necessary steps and certifications and all that stuff that you have to to go through, but it's almost like they make it to the point where where they're almost trying to deter you from doing this. Like they're gonna, you just keep running into all these speed bumps and all these processes and paperworks and, and this and that. Like I, I you know, the, you said there's a, a bunch out there that you know are more than you had anticipated but how many you know halfway through were like this isn't worth it this is too much and just you know gave up on it
1: yeah it, it's been very difficult and it, it makes it very hard for uh, a small operation like, like ours uh, to get up off the ground um, it's a lot of money to, to spend and a lot of footwork to get started to not even know if anyone's going to like it and want to buy it um, so th- that is difficult and technically it just I just want to correct myself it's not Technically, the, the treats are not for human consumption. That's a whole nother thing. You can make human-grade um, food, which is a little bit different. There's a little bit more, even more stringent uh, restrictions and more stuff they check on. But um, as far as the dehydrating the meats go, um, there's a they, they call it a, a five-log reduction in salmonella. It's I have like a 50-page paper that Cornell University sent me that I had to read front to back, all about the the science. Of this temperature at this moisture and and this temperature at this moisture gets rid of this much salmonella at this time and it, it's crazy. So so that that aspect of it is the, the same that they do for for human consumption. Uh, but there are another couple extra hoops that I would have to go to to get it certified um, human grade, which um, it's not right now. Um, one of those would have to be a, a big commercial kitchen uh, as well, which I'm not quite ready for that yet. Yeah. So one day we can get uh, certified human grade as well, but one step at a time.
0: Yeah, there you go. I mean, did you even anticipate, you know, all of, you know, everything that you now know had to learn, the process you had to go through? I mean, did you envision it anywhere near that when you and your wife decided to, to get this thing off the ground?
1: No, definitely not. And, and I even, I did my homework, but I guess I didn't do enough of it. Anyway. <laughs>
0: uh,
1: you know, I, I did, I did do a lot of research on it. Um, but there's certain things that you just, you don't know the, the real technical details until you're that involved in it, you know, because these, these people that do it are, uh, at the Department of Agriculture, they're also, they're very busy. Like I said, they, they everything, those are the other things that everything gets sent in for January's approval. So every single dog tree that's sold in this state has to be approved by that department in like a three month period leading up to January. So they have so much work to go through all this paperwork so it's like trying to get a hold of them to ask them little stupid questions when you're not even a a registered business yeah you know it's, it's difficult to to get them on the phone that time of year um and it's not their fault they're just they're, they're overworked and understaffed for what they're doing i guess um but yeah we definitely did not anticipate it to be uh this involved i'm glad we stuck with it though because you know so far so good um it's slow but uh you know it's growing slowly but um, it's, it's working out, you know, and we, we definitely we hit some speed bumps. We, uh, we started veering off in a couple of different directions, doing other things to make up for the, the lack of treats. Um, we do a lot of natural chews now. Uh, we sell a lot of elk antler chews. Um, we just started getting into the moose antler chews. Uh, we, you know, we have uh, bully sticks, um, cow hooves, um, and we make rope toys now uh, as well. So these were all things that we could – Um you don't have to do all the the crazy uh paperwork and registrations and testing and all that for. Um so we kind of you know got sidetracked on that, which that's working out pretty good because those are some of our biggest sellers right now. Um is the chews and the rope toys. So
0: Yeah, so how are you going about acquiring antlers and, and things like that? I mean are you literally just, you know, finding people who, who just have like a, a surplus of these types of things. I mean, obviously I know that a lot of people, you know, use, uh, antlers and, and whatnot for, for chews for their dogs. But I mean, I always assume that a lot of those were like, you know, people went out shed hunting, you know, maybe they found one that was already kind of chewed up or it was, you know, maybe a little small or something. They're just like, you know, they gave it to their dog, you know, so how, how do you guys go about uh, acquiring those? Well, unfortunately in New York, there's no wild elk,
1: uh, right? and, <laughs> and elk chews are, are, are the big one um, there, there are some moose uh, upstate New York but not anywhere near me um, but uh, I, I work with uh, a woman out in Utah uh, she has a, a, a family business that they, they deal in antlers um, her and her family they go out every year they, they hunt for the sheds themselves they also purchase from uh, other local collectors um, and they're like a middleman. Okay, uh, get them shipped from her uh, out to me and um, she has them. Some of them are cut from her. I cut further. I have my own little shop set up where um, you know I cut them exactly how I want. She cuts them big enough to ship um, to fit into a reasonable size box, so I don't have to pay hundreds of dollars to ship it. I only have to pay like fifty dollars to ship it instead. The uh, <laughs> entire elk antler it, it would be insane. Um, but it's funny because it's actually there's a that's another thing I didn't know that much about. You know, I know I've given my dog antler shoes for a while. Um, I've, you know, I've always enjoyed looking for shed antlers myself, but uh, I never realized until I started getting into it and talking to some people that are involved in it, that it's a whole international market Really? Uh, for, oh yeah. Yeah. And according to these, like I, I spoke to one guy for that's been in the antler business since the seventies. Um, and he said that a lot of it is, is driven the, like the prices. it's an international market that they, like the prices can go up by the pound, like any day, like any other commodity. It's pretty wild. And he says that that uh, a lot of the Asian countries have a lot to do with the prices going up and down. I they use them for traditional medicines and stuff like that, um, and their demand out there can actually like skyrocket the prices here in America. It's it's wild how it's all intertwined like that. So so the elk antler chew that you bought from the store to give to your dog could double in price next year because they're running out of their ground antlers in over in in Asia somewhere for. You know, one of their one of their traditional medicines. So their demand is going up over there, so it drives the prices up over here. It's uh, it's, it's pretty wild, and it's also he also told me that this is like the new, this is the new thing that the dog chews. He That it was always they said for a while it was the traditional medicine was the big seller, uh, then for a while it was um, artwork, you know, uh, chandeliers, lamps, you know, in, in you know interior artwork basically and right. furniture, uh, were were his big driving things for for years. Uh, he said, now it's just dog shoes. He said, that's all, most of, this is a big wholesaler. so most of his his uh, customers are, are, they're selling his dog shoes." He said, she never thought it would it explode like this and be so big. And it's like the biggest fad in dogs, I guess, lately.
0: Well, you learn something new every day because I did not realize, you know, and maybe I just never thought about it, right? Because I've seen plenty of like interior uh, decorations that are, you know, antler themed from you know any type of you know any animal that that has that that carries antlers you know chandeliers uh you know candle holders you know the kind of the usual type stuff but the the traditional medicine uh you know like that's that's something i i never thought about and the fact that you were like you know one of one of your contacts or one of the the guys you had talked to was like yeah i've been in the antler business since the 70s like if someone were to tell me that just kind of out of the blue or you know you meet someone like oh what do you do for a living oh, I'm in the antler business I'm like what what do you mean you're in the antler business like well tell me more right because that's uh, that's pretty interesting but you know the more you kind of explained it I mean it makes complete sense right
1: yeah yeah. <laughs> she wants some attention now too she's yeah. to been talking <laughs> um, yeah no it, it does make sense it's definitely something like you said that I never thought of like I've seen chandeliers and all that kind of stuff in the Cabela's catalog since I was a kid you know, I always wanted one for my house. Always thought they were really cool, but just never realized that there was it was such a worldwide commodity. Yeah. Um, and, and another thing uh, that apparently is an issue is uh, the opposite antlers coming from China and other Asian countries here to be sold as dog chews that are treated with chemicals and, and stuff over there that wouldn't be allowed over here. Um, so they're unsafe, according to some vets and 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 whoever else. I'm not a I don't know that much about it, but um, yeah, they 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 can they were selling cheaper ones that were uh, processed that were supposedly no good. So that's another side of that whole antler antler chew thing there.
0: Yeah, wow. So, you know, anyone who who owns uh, a dog, you know, has been to you know whether it's a a local you know smaller kind of mom and pop type you know animal or, or pet store you know or they've been to you know some of like the the big box the the pet smart the pet supplies things like that. So what is it or you know what what would you say kind of separates you know what you're selling and what you guys are making to to the items I guess that you would see kind of in some of those big box stores.
1: Okay, well, as far as the treats go, um our treats are all a small batch. They're made by me and my wife. Uh we don't have any employees, it's just us. Uh we do it ourselves. It's all um like I said, all small batch. It's, we don't use any preservatives. We don't use any additives. Um, so limited ingredients. So like I said, we have four treats available right now for sale, experimenting with a lot of others, but those are the four we have, uh, currently for sales. Our beef liver is hundred percent beef liver. That's it. There's nothing else in it. Um, our sweet potatoes are just sweet potatoes, nothing else in it. We have our peanut butter banana bites, which look like, uh, it's, basically a slice of banana, like a banana chip, mm-hmm. with a, a peanut butter drizzle on it. And that, that peanut butter is actually just powdered peanuts mixed with water to make, excuse me, to make a paste. So it's not even real peanut butter with the added salts and sugars and stuff like that. The ingredients is that is is bananas, ground peanuts, and water, and that's it. Okay. And then our, is the, the same peanut butter, which is ground peanuts uh, with water to make a paste, uh, bananas again and oat flour. So there's nothing else in any of our treats. It's, it's all very straightforward. No air, there's no preservatives, no no uh, ingredients you can't pronounce, you know. Um, so that's what makes our treats stand apart. Uh, our antlers, um, I'd have to say that our antlers are, as far as those, those big box stores go, our antlers are cheaper uh, price-wise because uh, I'm basically the middleman um, I, I'm, I'm, what I'm selling them for is uh, the prices I'm selling them for is basically what some of these distributors are selling them to the pet stores for.
0: Okay.
1: So I'm going I'm going directly to the source um, and not having a distributor in between me and the source, which allows me to offer the lower prices. Um, and a lot of them are better quality. Uh, I can't say all of them are better quality. I, I, they're the same quality or better. Um, I've gone through pet stores. Um, I'm not going to mention any names, but some of the big ones. And you'll look at some of their antlers and you'll see their their sheds that must have been laying out there for two, three years. You know, they're, they're chalky. They have cracks going through them. And if, if you, you have a, a very small dog that doesn't chew very hard, you can get away with that. But if, if you can see a, vis, a visible crack in the antler and you have a heavy chewer, it's only a matter of time until a piece splinters off of that. Yeah. And antler, an antler, most antlers are much harder than than a lot of bones. And when they splinter, they can't really crunch up, you know, but, you know, crunch them down uh, to digest them. If they swallow a splinter, you know, antlers, you got to be in for a big vet bill, you know. Um, So we definitely have, uh, like I said, better quality than some of them there, if at least the same quality of um, some of the better ones they have on the shelves. It's always hit or miss there. Um, They have some good ones. They have some bad ones. they got some middle-of-the-road ones. Uh, We try our best to keep, you know, grade A, top quality, fresh antlers uh, with no cracks. I go through them myself uh, after I get them uh, because always one or two winds up getting mixed in the shipment that shouldn't have been. Uh, And then we take what we do with those ones is we take those and we cut them into smaller pieces and uh, we sell those for rodents, for people that have pet mice, rats, uh, squirrels, um, guinea pigs, hamsters, rabbits. Um, they can use those to gnaw, you know, because they, they need to gnaw to keep their, their teeth down, um, the rodents. So people can buy those. The, those cracked ones are not an issue for a small animal like that. So we find another way to use those rather than trying to sneak them in into the, the dog-to-selection, uh, like a lot of these other companies do. Yeah. Um, and then, as far as our, then we have the rope toys that I mentioned before as well. Um, our rope toys, we make our rope toys um, with 100% cotton rope, Uh, This rope is made by a USA company uh, called Ravenox. We have a wholesale account with them that we work with their ropes. The rope is uh, made from recycled fibers. The recycled fibers are collected from around the world. Uh, A lot of them are um, discarded from the textile industry, no scraps, Uh, basically destined for landfills. Uh, They work with uh, an organization called Recover, which goes around. They collect all these cotton scraps cotton fibers, and recite, they bring them to America, to their facility in North Carolina, and they um, they make them into uh, rope, usable cotton rope, 100% cotton rope. We, so that's the rope that we use. Um, they're a veteran-owned company, uh, 100% made in USA, okay. other than the fact that they get the scraps from around the world. Everything else is all made in America. Um, and that's another thing I, I didn't mention about our, our antlers, is our antlers are all 100% from America. There's no outsourcing from China and other uh, countries around the world. It all comes from America. They're all from, they're all naturally shed antlers that come from wild free range elk. They don't come from farmed elk. They don't come from, uh, killed elk. Um, it's all just, you know, natural sheds. Um, so the rope tours, like I said, hundred percent cotton rope, maybe the hundred percent recycled materials, uh, made in the USA. And we, we incorporate some of the elk antler pieces and some cow hooves, uh, into some of our rope toys as well, so we have a couple of unique products as well.
0: That's awesome. I mean, <clears throat> the the fact that, and you know, maybe it's just because I think back like when, um, you know, when when I had dogs growing up, and you know, I never paid attention to the food that we gave them. It was always just you know, it was kind of like a the chore as a young kid was like you know, making sure the dogs were fed and let outside and had water and all that stuff. But then when I was in my early twenties. Uh, and uh, bought my first dog. Uh, even then, I didn't have a, a lot of knowledge in, in terms of you know what good dog food was, or what you know what dog food had a had a bunch of these added additives, uh, additives and preservatives and things like that. And then you know you, you take the dog to the vet, you know as as a puppy and stuff like that, and you learn. It's almost like you get this crash course in, in you know what's good dog food because you see the you know, the big brands uh, out there, and I i don't need to name them, you know, people know who they are or what they are. Um, and then there's just, it's not really the best dog food that you can be, you know, feeding your animal. I mean, there's a lot of other companies that, that make a lot better quality uh, dog food. And yeah, you might pay a little bit more. But, you know, like I alluded to earlier, I mean, that's, you know, a, a dog for a lot of people. I mean, its it's kind of, it's another one of their kids, or it's their only kid. You know what I mean. So to, yeah, it, it's something that people I feel like uh, in recent years have become a lot more aware of, right? And they they want, you know, f- you know whether it's their food, whether it's their treats, whatever it is, they want those, um, those particular things to be you know very high quality, and they want to be giving their dog you know the best possible food or, or treats that are available to them.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's definitely. Uh, I feel the same way. You know, when I was younger. It was something that no one really paid attention to. Uh, maybe they didn't care too much about it. Just, just wasn't a thought. It was, oh, you know, it's dog food. Dog food is dog food. It's dry kibble. And then a lot of people give them whatever table scraps, and you know, no one really thought too much of it. Uh, but in, in recent years, it's definitely become a thing where people are definitely more conscious of what's going into it, um, what's going into the food, where their food is coming from. Uh, but th- That goes to, to our own consumption as well, though. I feel like that's a big it all kind of ties in together. You know, the, you go back 20 years, not as many people cared about where their food came from. Right. Um, definitely, a, there's a lot bigger movement now of, of having some kind of connection to where your food comes from, um, or at least knowing where it comes from. Um, and uh, there's definitely been a lot of outbreaks of different, you know, recalls on, on different big-name brands uh, of foods. that's definitely um, brought a lot of attention to that as well. And, and with COVID, there's been a, a huge spike with uh, dog ownership. You know, so there's a lot of a lot of new dog owners out there and actually kind of worked out another one positive thing that came out of it for us um, on a personal level is when we started the business, it, there's a, a new boom of of dog owners that were they're all in that process of, you know, you, you had mentioned, you know, when you get your puppy, you bring it to the vet and you kind of learn so all this stuff at once. There was a lot of people doing that all at one time uh, when COVID hit and everybody was working from home. You know, I don't know how it was out there, but here in New York, you know, I'm not too far from New York City, and uh, all those people that were commuting to the city every day uh, didn't have time for a dog. Um, all of a sudden, they find themselves at home every day, all day, every day, bored, and they're looking at all these dogs on online in these shelters, and next thing you know, the shelters are were empty, uh, almost, and people were having trouble trying to adopt the dog, because uh, there's so many so many people home, um, so we kind of started off at a good time um, for that as well because we kind of got in there and we're able to talk to some people, um, you know, doing these markets. We do a lot of farmer's markets and stuff. So we get out there, and we we talk to our customers, um, give them a rundown of how we do things. And, you know, we uh, bounce ideas and questions and answers back and forth all, uh, off each other. Um, I just, yeah, a lot of people just trying to finally get to where where their food's coming from for their dogs and making sure that their dogs are, uh, you know, eating healthy.
0: Yeah, that was one aspect I never even considered with all the people at home, you know, like you said if if you didn't have an animal or you didn't have a pet because you know from a, a sheer uh, time perspective, right? You just you just if you didn't feel like you could um you know, set aside enough time to to raise an animal, to to make sure it gets exercise and all that things, excuse me, all those things. And then yeah, you're stuck at home. Yeah, I I never really considered how that would you know, affect all these uh, shelters and people then, you know, wanting to adopt dogs, which is, you know, again, thankfully, another, another kind of positive that came out of all this, because I'm sure, you know, not only just having more time, but you know, these these people that that, you know, potentially lived alone or something like that, like, you know, they and they weren't going out, right. So there was no, you know, interaction. It's amazing, you know, for me, how often I find myself talking to my dog, if I'm just sitting around by myself, you know, so I'm sure that, other people kind of found that uh, it filled a bit of a void for him, you know.
1: Oh, absolutely, absolutely. There's definitely the you know the working from home thing was big, but I could I could see that being a huge uh, huge player in that as well. Just just to have some companionship, you know, just having some somebody something to be there with you that you can have a real relationship with, you know, because you can't go outside, you you couldn't go to work, you couldn't go to school, you some people couldn't go to the grocery stores and, and do all that stuff, so you were. Some people are just stuck inside all day every day and uh, you know dogs can do a lot for somebody in a situation like that you know
0: yeah, absolutely so I want to shift gears a little bit here uh, but keeping with the business um, obviously you know one of the reasons that we were able to become introduced uh, and, and you know sit down and talk about the business is um, you know you guys recently became two percent certified uh, so tell me how was it that you learned about two percent for conservation?
1: Well, I had heard about 2% for Conservation years ago um, on a Meat Eater podcast episode. Um, I listened to that podcast almost religiously, (laughs) Um, and I remember a couple years ago, um, they had somebody on, I believe it was Jared, um, was on there talking to them about 2% for Conservation, what it is, the idea behind it. I think they were just getting started off, Um, and I remember thinking, "That's, that's an awesome idea, and if I ever get to the point in my life where I can start a business that's one of the first things I want to do is make sure that I'm I can figure out how to get 2% for conservation certified. Um, I just thought it was it was it was cool how you know anybody can donate 2%, 5%, 10% of their funds to whatever you know organization they want to conservation or anything else any other nonprofit. You know uh, once you once you make money it's If you're making enough money where you're looking for places to give it away, like some of these real big companies are, it doesn't take much to just say, "Ah, yeah, give them a check, write them a check, write them a check." But to actually hold you accountable, to actually get in there and get your hands dirty, uh, and be involved and giving back, the the fact that they encountered that they incorporated, um, you know, one percent of your time as well as you know financial support um, was was big for me. I thought that was a, a genius idea that I couldn't believe nobody else had thought of previously. You Know so, um, it was that podcast episode that I said, as soon as I do, you know, if I ever do it, I'm gonna do it. And if I ever do a business, start a business, I'm gonna become certified. And you know, I, I started the business, uh, and shortly after that, I had it in my mind, I gotta start doing my research, um, I gotta get in contact with them, see what this entails. You know, is it something I can do right away, or is it something I'm gonna have to wait until I get, you know, a little bit more well established? Um, so I reached out to Jared. Uh, I went on the website, Googled 2% for Conservation, uh, found the website, looked through it, and uh, first thing I noticed was, wait, there's there's nobody in New York State. Yeah. There's, there's no businesses in New York State, and there's no pet-related businesses. I'm like, hmm, it's, maybe they just haven't updated it in a while. There's no way that, you know, I'd be the first one, right? So I emailed Jared, and, you know, we wound up talking on the phone a day or two later, and uh, uh, that was I was so excited about that part, but I had to like hold back on that. I, had to, you know, was, I wanted to be professional and talk about the, <laughs> what can I do to do this. Is this something I can do now? And then once I realized like this is something I can, I can take on right now. I said, okay. So, am I reading this right? Am I going to be the first New York State business? Am I going to be the first dog treat or pet related business? And he says, uh, yeah, yeah, you are. I said, that's we well, have to we have to make this happen now before another New York City business and another dog treat business comes through before I get my paperwork in. So, so we got started on it right away. Jared made it very easy for me. Um, you know, he worked with me and, uh, helped me out a lot getting, getting some things figured out. Um, I got hooked up with a, um, a committee member out here in New York, uh, Gary, who has been great. Um, uh, he's been helping me out a lot, a lot of stuff. That was another great feature having the committee members, um, to help you, you know, reach out to the right areas and, and to to get involved so um yeah that's that's how that happened
0: well real quick i i feel like this is kind of a, a bit of a sidebar but there was a, another 2% committee member who i've i've had on the podcast um her name is Cindy Stites and yep. yeah okay so yeah you know where i'm going with this so i'll kind of preface it a little bit and then i'll kind of let you because it's your story. It's yours to tell. Um, but I'll just kind of set the scene. Um, so Cindy, uh, is a committee member for 2% for conservation. Uh, she's also has an affiliation with hunt to eat, which is another 2% brand. Um, but had a very, uh, unusual, uh, encounter, uh, while Turkey hunting this year. Um, and I, a little bit happened in there, but that's kind of, uh, Kevin, where you came in. So so tell us about that story because this is something that's really cool that I, I want to make sure people hear about.
1: Yeah, uh, it, it's an awesome story, actually. And um, it goes back to me me finding out about it. goes back to the New York committee member, uh, Gary Maers. I, I hope I'm pronouncing his last name right. M-A-E-R-Z. Um, he's the one that brought it to my attention. Uh, he uh, somehow found a story. He's friends with um, Cindy Stites. He knows Cindy. Um, I've talked to her a handful of times, just via um, messages on on social media and stuff with this situation. Uh, she's awesome, an awesome woman. Um, I don't really know her on a personal level, but uh, from what I can see, she's awesome. Yeah. Uh, so I guess what had happened was she was out turkey hunting. Uh, I'm pretty sure it was a hunt to eat uh, camp she was doing. Uh, she was out turkey hunting and. Uh, she heard something um you, you can actually you can go to her instagram her her facebook she has she, she did a great job of laying out the entire story with pictures and all of that just in case I missed a little, i'll do the best i can for my memory but i wasn't there um she she hears uh, some whimpering and some rustling uh doesn't know what's creeping up on them and it turns out to be this little dog that's um, barely barely alive um the the thing like was using it, its last its its last breath to like get up to her like she the, uh, she was saying that you know this there was a reason this dog seeked her out in the middle of nowhere like they were out in the middle of nowhere turkey hunting and, and this dog that could is barely alive clinging on to life somehow found her um, and came up to her and just like collapsed right at her and was whimpering and, and almost dead and she thought for sure the thing was gonna die. Um, I don't know a ton of details, other details, but I do know that she uh, she took the dog, uh, took it back to the farm where they were, I believe they were staying for the hunt to eat camp. Um, got it some food, some water, um, some some medication, some sort of medication probably uh, for parasites. It was covered in fleas and flies, and it was it was it was it was bad. It was in real bad shape. Um, didn't think that it was going to make it. She got it to a vet. Uh, she was. Going to, she was looking for a place to take it. She has um, Catahoula, so she's got the two big dogs at home, um, and she didn't feel that she could take on a third dog. Uh, so she wanted to do the responsible thing and find a find somebody that could better care for it. Um, and long story short, she she realized that, you know, it was one of those things that was just meant to be. Um, she did give the dog to a rescue organization, uh, somebody that she knew personally that was taking good care of it and trying to find a home. And it just, it just, she couldn't let it happen. She wound up going back and taking the dog. Um, and it's great because I, I, you know, I follow her on social media and she's she's always posting about it. Uh, and I just, I smile every time I see the dog. The dog, to watch the dog go from the pictures and the videos of that dog, you know, barely clinging on to life. To now, like, living the best life that dog could live. Um, it was Cindy and her family and her dogs. It's, it's just awesome. Um, so Gary had uh, reached out to me because he wanted to... Buy some stuff, uh, some treats and some toys and stuff like that to send out to Cindy for this dog. Um, so Gary's the one that got me involved in this. Uh, so he called me up and he placed an order with me and uh, and we sent her we sent her some goodies for the pup and uh, it's great. Just like I said, watching him on Instagram and, and Facebook, watching the, you know, watching him go from nothing to, like I said, living the life. And it's funny, cause he he's a tiny little dog. You know, yeah. I forget. I believe she was gonna. I don't know if she did the. I think she did do a DNA test, um, but some some of the ideas going around was that he might have had some Chihuahua in him, some Beagle. He's a very small dog, and like I said, she's got two Catahoulas there. And he, it's funny because he from the pictures and videos I've seen, he, yeah, he acts like he's the same size as them. You know, he gets right <laughs> in there rough house with them and stuff. It's great. So yeah, that was that was a pretty cool uh, pretty cool story. Um, like I said, you can you can check it out on her own uh, social media platforms uh, for more detailed. Version with pictures, um, but yeah, it was a good. That was a good one. That was great.
0: Yeah, I think I. I mean, I, <clears throat> I, like I said, I, I've had Cindy on the podcast. Uh, it was a while ago, um, but so I, I follow her on social media, and we've we've stayed in contact a little bit here and there uh, since then. But yeah, I saw the story, and then I'm not even sure how I came across it, but I remember seeing that you had sent some treats, some toys, and everything out to that, and this may have been. Uh, maybe shortly after you guys had been announced as 2% certified. So I knew who you were, uh, right? I I, I knew the brand. um, But to see, to see you guys get involved, you know, a 2% brand supporting, you know, another committee member, and just, you know, just doing the right thing, essentially, when you saw, you know, how the whole story unfolded and everything like that, to me, like, I just, it, it just made me really happy to see, you know, other companies kind of, you know, going to bat and helping out where, you know, where they saw someone, you know, possibly needed some help. You know, not that maybe Cindy couldn't, you know, buy food for the dog or anything like that. But it was just, you know, you saw what the dog had gone through. And as, as a dog owner, you, you want to try to help the dog out as much as possible. So so kudos to you guys for for stepping up and, and donating some stuff and getting some stuff over to uh, to Cindy and her puppy there
1: yeah yeah, that, that was it was pretty cool uh, like I said Gary was the one that brought that to my attention if it wasn't for him uh, I, I probably wouldn't have even known about it because uh, I didn't know about um, Cindy before that yeah um, I I'm, you know like it was like you said it was shortly after I was announced as a two percent uh, business so I'm, I'm still you know meeting some people I don't really, you know still checking out different businesses um, so yeah Gary like I said Gary was the one that told me about it he said he wanted to send some stuff so I said that's a great idea. Uh, so he he out of his own pocket he bought some stuff uh, and then we sent some stuff as well um, you know it was the least we could do and it was pretty cool because there was uh, there was a little bit of a, a following on Facebook uh, and Instagram of, of just other I don't know if there are people that she knew per- personally or just just people that saw the story that were just giving as well just you know donating money to vet bills and and to food and stuff like that so it was pretty cool to see all that happening especially with you know people that don't even know you know, Cindy, to begin with, they just saw the story and just, you know, wanted to help out, do what they could. thought that was pretty cool.
0: Yeah. It's amazing what, uh, one act of kindness in, in this case, what Cindy did with the dog, how that kind of has this snowball effect with other people who want to, you know, help out and and, uh, and do good things as well. So no, it's a, that's a great story all the way around. So with the conservation side of things, uh, kind of going back to that, what are, uh, what are some of the organizations that, uh, that you guys are working with over there?
1: Well, uh, as you said before, we're, we're pretty new um, to 2% for the conservation. Um, we have pledged to work with the Rough Grouse Society, our local chapter here uh, in New York. Um, we've been doing uh, some other little things here and there, uh, nothing major. We did a small sponsorship for uh, New York BHA, uh, Mustard in the Mountains. You know, We donated some stuff for the raffles over there um that, that's a lot of what we've been doing right now because uh you know we we, we don't have that we don't have a lot of funding at the moment to mm-hmm. unfortunately you know as a brand new business just starting out we're still trying to uh you know make up our startup costs never mind make a profit yet <laughs> so um we're trying to do what we whatever we can swing uh and still let the business grow um we've been we've been donating a lot of gift certificates um products to be raffled off stuff like that to different organizations Um, we are going to be making a monetary donation, um, before the end of the year to our chapter of the Ruff Grouse Society. Um, like I said, we, we donated some products, um, products and gift certificates to the Mustard Mountains event for a raffle. Um, we just did a a small sponsorship at a, uh, local, uh, NAVDA chapter, uh, North American Versatile Hunting Dog Association, um. They sponsored. They did a, a Sporting Clays benefit shoot last week, um, which was to they were raising money to support Cornell University's uh, canine Cancer Research Fund, uh, which I thought was a pretty cool thing. Uh, which I didn't even somehow it went you know, above my radar. I didn't even know about the event um, until about a week before, um, and I sort of scrambled. I saw oh, this is a great, you know, this is a great thing. There were another organization that I was looking into getting involved with, just didn't pull the trigger on. So I reached. I immediately emailed the the guy that was putting the shoot together. Um, I was able to send him a small check uh, for some sponsorship stuff um, and another gift card to get raffled away um, in his thing. Um, And that that's really basically it right now. Is we've been just been doing that. Um, I haven't reached out yet, but I have plans to reach out to my local chapter of the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. Um, Just kind of figured that we do so much. Um, we sell so many elk antlers from wild elk. It's just a no brainer, uh, that one of the conservation organizations we support should probably have something to do with the elk that we sell parts of, you know? (laughs) So, um, like I said, that's, I I haven't contacted them yet, but that's, uh, you know, that's on my list of things to do. Uh, see how we can get involved with them locally.
0: Um, yeah, no, that's great. And I love, uh. Kind of the approach that you're taking with uh, doing a lot of things locally, um, what I've found in you know my short time of of owning a business and becoming two percent certified and giving back is uh, I found that I like working with the local organizations uh, a lot just because you feel like uh, you can have a bit more of a, a personal relationship with. know, with the organizations or with people inside the organizations that are making money. So if you're going to be making a monetary donation, you can talk to them and be like, hey, you know, what projects are you working on? You know, if, uh, you know, I want to donate and then, you know, or you find out what they're working on. You can say, okay, this, I would like to donate and I would like, you know, if possible that money to be kind of earmarked for this, you know, particular project. And especially, you know, if, uh, if you're doing a lot of your recreating, you know, right there in your home state, uh, you know, in New York state, you know, I'm here in Michigan, um, you know it's it's nice to to be able to give back uh you know where you're where you're spending all your time outdoors
1: yeah absolutely uh, I mean, it just makes more sense i mean uh, they all need money all the organizations need money they're they they're, the national organizations need money the local chapters need money um like you said i just feel like there's more of a personal connection uh when you work together with your local chapters you just there's more you, you feel more involved you are more involved You know, they're actually doing a project, like you said, that you you can get involved in. You know where that money's going to. Like, you know, we're going to write you a check for X amount of dollars uh, to go towards, you know, this upland project that you guys have planned for the spring or, you know, something like that, rather than just, you know, here's a check to, you know, the national headquarters, uh, do whatever you need to do with it. Like I said, it's all needed. Uh, It just, I don't know, I personally feel better about it knowing exactly what it's going for, and, and especially something like that where, you know, an upland habitat project that could can, can be going towards the, some of the fields that I hunt, you know? Yeah. Always um, so cool to see it. And it's not that, you know, not that that's why I'm doing it for a personal game, but it's nice to be out there in the woods doing what you like to do, knowing that you did something to help it get to the point that it's at. You know what I mean?
0: Oh yeah. No, I I couldn't agree more. I mean, if you're, if you're out there bird hunting, um, you know, and, and you're, you know, you're donating back to your, your local rough grouse society, you know, chapter. I mean, yeah, it's, it just kind of makes sense you're you're taking and giving at you know at you know as best of rate as possible and you know you know if you're if you're shooting birds you know if you're taking from the land you're also doing as much as you can to you know with with whether it's time or with money so whether you know that's going back to improve that habitat uh whatever the case is make sure that that population is strong so not only you but you know other people who you might not even know that like to enjoy uh you know grouse hunting or upland hunting as well can can partake in that you know along with you
1: yeah absolutely and that's another thing i like about the the rough grouse society is a lot of their habitat work uh obviously is is geared towards grouse um but there's so many different animals both game animals and non-game animals that benefit from that specific habitat that that grouse thrive in, you know so not only am i is are they helping out with local grouse populations but all, you know, all types of animals from, you know, from the littlest ones to the biggest ones, they all game and non-game. So many different animals and ecosystem as a whole uh, really benefits from a lot of a lot of their uh, habitat work.
0: Yeah. Yeah. that That's very well put. So kind of on that note of, of, of you mentioned, you know, like uh, liking to to bird hunt and things like that. How was it, Kevin, that you were introduced to the outdoors?
1: Uh, I was introduced as a kid. Um, my father was always a deer hunter growing up. Uh, he never did much small game, but his father wasn't a hunter. He was basically the first one in his family, uh, to hunt. Um, and so it was basically my father and and my, uncle, um, got me into it. My uncle was always big into, uh, firearms. Uh, he's a big, serious collector, uh, firearms. And, um, a big hunter, you know, he would always, he went out to Montana every year growing up. I was, I'd see him, you know, I'd, I used to spend the weekends at his house a lot and go out in the woods. We built a, we built a range in his woods and stuff when he bought his new house and his new property. And he brought us out hunting and taught us to shoot. And a lot of this was with my dad as well. Uh, but like I said, my uncle had a lot more experience than my father did. My father was self-taught, uh, which there's nothing wrong with that. Um, he definitely got us interested and, he, you know, he got me and my brother uh, out there, got got the seed planted, you know. And then my uncle helped us kind of fine-tune it a little bit. So it was, it was some good teamwork between the two of them. Um, yeah, I, I remember uh, tagging along when I was 10, 11. I'd, I'd start to tag along. 12 is uh, New York State. Um, when I was when I was growing up, 12, you had to be 12 years old to hunt small game. Um, and then you had to be with a firearm hunt big game with a firearm was 16 and to hunt with a bow big game was 14 um so i didn't start really tagging along until about 10 or 11 on the small game stuff and um i went to uh our local one of our local federation of the local gun clubs fishing game clubs uh an annual youth pheasant hunt every year um my uncle got me signed up for that when i was 12 and i went and uh, i think i shot two out of three birds um, and I dude, I was just hooked, man. That was it. Like I always I always wanted to do what I was always interested, and in. i had gone, You know, we went squirrel hunting, rabbit hunting, came back empty handed a couple times, and and I did that, and I actually got something, and, and that was it, man. I was after that, it was you know I got I got my first shotgun for Christmas when I was 12 years old. You know, uh, right you know right after I got my hunting license, I went for my you know the hunter safety. as Soon as the day I turned 11, which was you had to be 11 in New York to take the course, and then 12 to buy the license. Um, I, yeah, it was definitely, you know, my father and my uncle really helped out with that, you know, getting me and getting me into the shooting, into, into hunting, fishing. Um, I did, uh, I went to a New York state department of environmental conservation summer camp when I was a teenager as well, which that helped a lot too. And that really got me into, g- gave me an early, um, interest in conservation as well, um, Cause I was, you know, a lot of what I was around was, you know, the old school, old timer, uh,
0: you know, the hunters
1: that were just, it was, it was all about going out in the woods, having a good time with each other and shooting fine. You know, It was the conservation was not that it was ignored. It just wasn't as big of a part of it as it is for some people to, you know, it, it wasn't really talked about much. It wasn't a, um, a big factor, uh, and when i went there i was introduced to some different ideas about things originally seen um and it just helped it helped uh, it helped like i said my father and my uncle planted the seed and these other kind of things kind of helped it grow and uh, i think that that was a big thing that helped me out help me get interested in other aspects of it of the outdoors not just going out and hunting but you know what can we do to make sure that this is something we can continue to do you know um and make sure that, you know, yeah, we're, we're out there, we're, we're harvesting animals, but what can we do to make sure that those, we don't harvest too much, and there's always a healthy population, you know, for future generations out there. Um, so that was basically it, man. Uh, you know, my father, my uncle, and those the the camps and the, some of the people I met there that I kept in contact with for a few years after that, uh, just kept it kept it going.
0: Yeah, so that's one, like, I, I mean, for, for people at home listening, like, Kevin and I can see each other. Um, so, like, I, I, I'm watching his face as he's telling this story about, you know, being introduced to, uh, to bird hunting at a young age. And, like, I can see his face lighting up. And, like, you can tell how passionate you are and, like, you know, how, how great of a memory. And, you know, what that really did for you, you know, for the next, you know, 20 years of your life And how that really helped shape, you know, your love and appreciation for the outdoors. And then, you know, on top of that, going to a conservation camp as a teenager, I mean, you're the first person I've talked to in in over a year that's that's ever, you know, at least that's ever told me about going to any camp like that. So, I mean, you got this really deep perspective uh, and this, you know, a real uh, in-depth knowledge at at a much younger age than, you know, I would guess a, a large... Uh, percentage of the population who, who, you know, are outdoorsmen or outdoors women.
1: Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, the camp thing is pretty cool. Um, it It's funny cause it's not very well known. It's a state run camp. It's run by the state department of environmental conservation, which is basically our, you know, our DNR type uh, agency. Um, but it's it, not very many people know about it. And the funny, the thing that I always found funny is that a lot of people, a lot of organizations sponsor, Kids to go. It's a one-week camp. It's. I mean, they do it for. Unless it's changed. I mean, it could, could change now. It's been 20 years since I've been there. Well, a little less than 20. But um, I'd gone a couple times. I went when I was 13, and then I went when I was 17, and then I volunteered for uh, a summer when I was 18. Okay. Um, and it's a lot of schools. They sponsor a kid every year, but nobody ever talks about it. I never knew growing up that school sponsored it. I got into it because. My uncle, who you know, who the one that I mentioned that, that brought me up in, into hunting and fishing, uh, his gun club, which I'm a member of now, but the place where I learned to shoot when I was a kid, uh, they sponsor a child every year to, to go for one week. Everybody, you can, anybody that's in the club or anybody outside of the club is more than welcome to. Uh, they put, you just put the name and age of the kid that you want to put in the hat. You know, it's no, it's sort of like a raffle, but you're not paying for anything. You don't, you're not buying tickets. You just. Put the name into a hat and they just pick a random kid every year, one boy, one girl, to sponsor to go to one of these uh, conservation camps. And that's how I got in the first time. I didn't know anything about it. My uncle asked me if I wanted to go. I said, yeah, that sounds pretty good. And he said, cool, because you, you're going. I <laughs> yeah, didn't even put my name in the hat. I'm like, all right. It was up in the Catskill Mountains. Uh, it was cool. We did, some, we did some fishing. We did some uh, canoeing. Um, a lot of cool stuff. They offer hunter safety courses there. Uh, they offer firearm training. They do uh, an overnight uh, in the woods. I like a pack in, pack out. Um, it's a really cool program. Um, and after that, I found out years later that the school that I went to sponsors as a kid every year. But I never met another kid in my school that ever went there. And, and I, I, I actually wound up this when I finally went again when I was 17. That's how I did it. I got I, I wrote a uh, an essay to the school, asking for a sponsorship, and they sponsored me. And, but there was like a five-year gap in between there, or a four-year gap that I had no idea that that even existed. And as I got older, I found out more and more organizations do it, but for some reason, people don't speak about. it. I, I don't know. I never understood that. I'd be, I'd be pushing that. You know, I I don't know.
0: Yeah, and I mean that's such a. a I mean the, the, that thirteen to seventeen. You know, I'm assuming once you got out of high school, or once you were eighteen, and you, and you maybe worked as like a volunteer. I mean, those are some really. Uh, kind of call it formidable years um, in terms of, you know, you're a sponge at that age, right? I mean, the the things that you learn or that you pick up without even realizing it, um, are it, it, I mean, it's it's insane to to think that people wouldn't, you know, that it wouldn't be talked about more that, you know, especially if it's, um, you know, put on by the state and, you know, there's just, there's got to be, you know, aside from just the conservation aspect of it, you know, just, you know, learning kind of some wood woodsmanship, right? You know, like canoeing and, and fishing and, and you know, shooting a firearm and fires, you know, uh, hunter safety. I mean, all these, you know, lessons that are, are super valuable that while you're, when you're 15, you may not realize it. But when you're 25, all of a sudden you're going to look back and be like, Man, like that was some, some really cool things that I was able to do that, you know, maybe I should have taken a little bit more advantage of at the time.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And it's, it's a great program, like I said. Um, they do wind up getting uh, a decent amount of, of participants from New York City. Uh, a lot of kids that have never experienced the outdoors like that. And they're, now they're spending a the week in either the Catskills or the Adirondacks, depending on which camp they're going to. Um, some kids have never held a firearm before, never held a fishing pole before. Um, so it's really cool. It really gets a lot of people exposed. Um, and another thing I found pretty fascinating was you had like, um, both ends of the spectrum there. Um, growing up, a lot of the, a lot of the hunters, uh, and fishermen that, that I had encountered were, um, very conservative, um, politically, you know, and, um, I don't even know how to say this, but, uh, kind of, you know, anti-climate change and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then you had the people that were for climate change and and conservation, that kind of stuff for like the other side, like there were two separate parties that really all want the same thing in the middle. You know what I mean? So it's like you went there and you got, you got the firearm training, you got to take your hunter safety course, you got to go fishing, you got to go hiking, you got to go canoeing. And then they taught you about climate change they had they had experts come in uh from new york state about some of the new alternative fuels that were being uh uh developed at the time um just various different things that you know usually have one end of the spectrum fighting for this thing and one end of the spectrum fighting for the other and fighting against each other but really you both want the same thing in the end you know like like conservation wise you know like we all want Healthy ecosystems with uh, healthy populations, uh, clean water and clean air. I mean, everybody wants that. I don't, I don't understand who wouldn't want that. Um, but you got these two sides are always fighting. And there, it was like everybody just came together and only talked about the good stuff that each side had going and none of the negative stuff, you know. So it was kind of like um, they kind of blacked out all the politics and just kind of got in there and got your hands dirty and you learned about all different things. Uh, it was good.
0: Yeah, no, that's that's one of the kind of the beauty of uh, like two percent, right, is is they are very nonpartisan. Uh, you know, that's why they're, you know, their uh, logo and, and all their messaging and everything is purple because they're, you know, again, it's it's nonpartisan. They they don't care whether you're on the left, the right, the red, the blue, whatever it is. I mean, it, it's just like you said that both sides, regardless of what you, uh, you know, whatever party line you vote down. I mean, you all, everyone wants the same things uh, that you just mentioned there. So in in a situation like that with, right, like you said, focusing on the positives, right? And, And only the positives, not like, oh, this side really likes to do this, but they don't like that. And this side, you know, if you just say like, if you just kind of present all of the positive information, I mean, it's, it's amazing, you know, how people can come together who, you know, kind of at the outside looking in, you might not think would agree on much, but conservation in the outdoors has a way of, of really kind of uniting people like that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's, well, that's one of the, another, another thing that I love about 2% is there's so much political drama and garbage out there these days. And they just, they stay clear away from all of it. And I, I think that's, that's an awesome idea an awesome way to go about it. Because like I said previously, there's, there's so many different people that have so many different, Views on various aspects of life, um, and but they a lot of us want this at least as far as conservation goes. We want the same thing, you know. And uh, hunters, and not just two percent for conservation, but my thing was always hunters and non-hunters. You know, a lot of those those people eventually, ultimately want the want the the same end goal. I mean, a lot of anti-hunters are anti-hunting because they want the animals out there and they love the animals and they don't want to see them killing animals. But they're looking at these animals as individuals and not as populations um but if we could just and a lot of the hunters just automatically blow off any of these anti-hunters or not even anti-hunters just people that aren't Mm pro-hunting that just don't understand it and not something they take a stance on they blow them off and disregard you know their their points their arguments their their policies whatever just because they disagree with them on on something else there's just so much more we could accomplish together left that political crap out of the way you know
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So real quick here, Kevin, before I let you go, where can people uh, find uh, Yearning Wild Treats and Chews at?
1: Uh, We have a website. The website is Uh, www.yearningwild.com. We're on uh, Facebook. You can look us up on Facebook under Yearning Wild Treats and Chews. Uh, We are on Instagram at Yearning underscore wild. Um, and we, can, you know, you can always reach us via email if you have any direct questions or just want to, you know, chit chat about whatever. You can always email us at info at yearningwild.com.
0: Awesome. Well, no, <clears throat> I've got a, uh, a seven month old lab here running around the house and I think I'm probably going to have to get her some new treats and some new chews because I mean, she's a lab. She likes to chew on, on everything at this point. So no, uh I'm really yep. glad that we were able to uh to sit down, Kevin. It was uh it was really cool to hear about, you know, the story that led to, to starting the business, you know, hear about your background um and, and the work that you guys are doing with conservation and, and what you hope to do in the future. Uh, Not, I really enjoyed it, man.
1: Yeah, it was it was good. It was great. Uh I enjoyed it as well. I'm glad we were able to work it out. I know my schedule is a little tough, so I apologize about that, but uh it's been great talking to you, Marcus.
0: Yeah, no, no worries. Well Take care of yourself, Kevin, and uh, hopefully we can talk to you again soon.
1: Sounds good. You do the same.
0: All right. Take care. All right. Well, there you have it. Uh, big thank you to Kevin for taking some time to join me today. I would also like to thank the partners of the podcast Wild Rivers Coffee Co., Go Hunt, and Stone Glacier, as well as 2% for Conservation. Uh, please be sure to go out and support the companies that support this podcast and help make it possible. Uh, And if you're interested in learning more about 2% for Conservation, you can visit their website, fishandwildlife.org. And there you can see all the certified brands that have committed to conservation that you should support when you shop. I also encourage you guys to follow 2% on social media where they're going to post only positive conservation-driven contents in your feed. So again, if you'd like to learn more about 2% for Conservation, you can look for them online on social media or at fishandwildlife.org. Thanks for tuning in this week, everyone. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Remember to stay safe out there, and conservation starts with you.